You don't want me to do the sermon? Do you want to do the sermon? I'd love it. Mark and Jenny, come on up. Barb, you're on for next week. How's that, the sermon? Okay, we have a big announcement uh, to make. Um, Jenny was diagnosed a few years ago with uh, cardiopulmonary hypertension. Why was I? I'm a little nervous. I'm not usually nervous, but pulmonary hypertension in the little system in the top of her heart. And it amounts to uh, difficult uh, oxygenation issues for her being here. How many of you have oxygen issues up here? A number of us do. So uh, for several years, Jen has been um, on oxygen whenever she's in the house and trying to keep those numbers up. We found out this summer that actually things are worsening. Her heart is being damaged and uh, things are, are going downhill. So... Uh, there's one simple solution to pulmonary hypertension, that is move away from 9,000 feet. You should not live up this high. Um, it's a struggle, but um, we've got a decision to make. It really wasn't a hard decision. I think a lot of you understand that. But it's a very important decision so that Jenny can uh, feel a lot better when she, I mean, everything works better and she's not damaging her heart when she's down out of elevation. So we're moving to the location in Florida where we have gone for 30 years uh, where her mom and stepdad lived for a long time out in the Tampa Bay area. Jenny's leaving the 24th of October. She's going to uh, go down quickly. And then I'm going to finish through the year, through Christmas, and through the end of the year, because Christmas is kind of our Super Bowl. I thought it would be a good idea to at least help facilitate that. And, um, and then we're on to our next journey. It's exciting and it's frightening, believe me, at the exact same time. But this church, we know, is going to be fine. As Dave Hunsinger has always said to me, even when a leader leaves, God doesn't leave with them, which is perfect. So that's our sad but obvious news. I'd like to invite all of the elders, uh, staff, present and past, to come up here, and we're going to pray for them. Okay? Just jump in and pray, and I'll close this. Dear Lord, all things work together for your glory. It's really hard to figure that out sometimes. <laughs> um, but uh, help uh, Mark and Jenny work to your glory, and every single person in here uh, work to, for your glory every day of their lives. Lord, we just thank you for, for what the work that Mark and Jenny have done at this church. Um, it will always be special. And we pray that uh, they will meet wonderful people, have great jobs, 
and bring you glory in Florida. Lord, you close doors and you open doors. It is not for us to know why, just to go through. Lord, we do lift up Jenny and Mark and pray that uh, Lord, just blessings and enlightenment on their path and uh, encouragement to them and that they would see your grace and your love and your leading through this change. That, uh, God, uh, they would see how you would use them and we pray that they, they would, be, would be blessed and uh, that you would uh, really, really make a, a great path for them and, and guide them. Father, we don't always understand <clears throat> why you do what you do or even agree with it, <laughs> but we sure love you. And uh, we love Mark and Jenny. Lord, we already know that you have great plans for them and for our church, and we are uh, expectant, anticipating what you're going to do next. Thank you for them. Um, continue to bless them. Help Jenny get to where it's healthy and to heal her heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Kids, out of here. That way. See ya. That's what life should be like. Yeah. Just running. Well, there's no doubt that it's been a long time since I've moved that fast anywhere, right? Yeah, exactly. That's fun. <laughs> Wow, Mark, once again, you changed my sermon series. <clears throat> I was going to talk about a flourishing community at the end of the series, but I decided to uh, bring you into it early on. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. Six and a half years ago, I was interviewing for this position here at the church. Seven years ago, I had walked into my boss's office, the president at Denver Seminary, and said, uh, thanks for a great job. I've now risen to a level that I'm not excited about or educated for. Pretty much all I was doing as a vice president was administration. And I want to get back into the trenches with people. So I stepped down. He said, you're leaving? And I said, I'm stepping down. I'm leaving. Where are you going? I have no idea. It was an adventure of faith for Nancy and me. So I stepped down from that and then began praying and started talking to churches and organizations. And uh, several months later, here I am up here. As part of the discussion with the elders in the interviewing process, I um, talked to them about Mark. I had gotten to know Mark. Um, Mark had actually come down and met with me before the interviewing process start. He knew Started, he knew that I was the front runner, which I did not know. So he drove down to Denver to meet with me. This is the type of person that Mark is. Uh, and he had a lot of questions for me. One of them was, what type of culture do you want? That's a pretty good question to start with. What's your dream for this church? Which I didn't know very much about this church. I knew a little bit. We'd visited, and I'd done a wedding or two up here, and things like that. But I didn't really know much about it. 
And so that's how we began the conversation. So in my negotiation and discussion with the elders about coming, I said it was very important to me that they invest into Mark and uh, that he go to seminary. Is seminary important? Yes, it is. It actually is. I know some of you wonder why. Seminary is one of those places where you actually begin to learn the deeper things that we need to, to manage all that we manage as pastors and, and ask all these questions. And I'm sure as you've watched Mark go through seminary, you've seen the change. Am I correct? You've seen him grow? Yeah, I see all your heads shaking. Yes. You've seen him transform in front of us as he's learned and grown. Um, the... One of the elders asked me at that time, do you think uh, there's the only place to learn? Can't you learn without it? And I said, let me ask you a question. Mark was in the running for this position. If you did not know him and all you got was his resume, would you have hired him, even considered him? They said, no. I said, then you've done him a disservice. Because in our country, this is an important credential to have to be a pastor. So that was important to me, and they agreed. The elders agreed, and you funded it and paid for it, and I'm very grateful. But one of the questions I asked the elders during that conversation was, um, when they finally agreed to do it, they thought, they thought it was a good idea. I asked them the question, once this happens, are you prepared to lose Mark or me or both of us? You see, we don't work for you. We report to the Lord. And we never know when the Lord's going to move us on. But I can tell you from a lot of years of experience, it's very uncommon to have two professionally trained pastors in a church this size. In a mega church, you might have this, perhaps. But it's very uncommon. It's a very small group of people that go on for training. So it's a, it's a real honor to be together with Mark. Are you prepared to lose one or both of us? That was a hard question. They said at the time, well, yes, we are. Well, now it's real life. Time has come. I always thought I would leave. But for whatever reason, I'm the Florida boy, Mark. Not you. And you get to go to Florida. I've been asking the Lord, what on earth are you thinking? But I can tell you this. The last six years... Without hesitation, I can tell you this. The last six years have been the best six years of my career with Mark. His opening questions to me when he drove down to Denver had to do with the staff. What did I think about the staff? I didn't. What was my philosophy? And what did I think about this church? And what culture did I have a dream of building? Because every pastor that comes shifts the church in some direction or another. And the elders had in their mind something that they, they wanted something a little different than what they had had. So he was very curious what I was going to bring here. And what I wanted to bring was a flourishing community. I knew the church was struggling. And so Mark and I began, what I'm doing is I'm letting you step behind the veil, if you will. What happens on the other side of this wall where our offices are. Mark and I began a six-year journey of, uh, and it's not over, by the way. It'll continue even when he's gone. We'll continue these discussions. But what does a flourishing community look like? What do we need to do? What does it mean to bring life to a community? What does it mean to bring so much life to a community that they're life-giving in their relationships? That conversation has been ongoing in a variety of ways 
for six years between the two of us. And the more equipped he's become, the more of a pain in the rear he's become. He doesn't mind getting in my face. I don't agree with you, but it makes me better. And so uh, we've laughed and argued for six years. And I can honestly tell you, with Mark sitting there, uh, it's been the best six years, six and a half years now, of my career. I, I, uh, this is hard for me. This is hard. Jenny is the quiet one. In fact, you notice she didn't say a word up here. That's Jenny. Give, Mike, give Mark a mic and he's happy. Right? Not Jenny. If I had handed her a mic, she'd hit me with it. <laughs> Jenny, am I right? <laughs> She's shaking her head. She'd much prefer to be in the nursery handling a little babies or doing something like that. And yet both of them are models of what a flourishing community is all about. So I decided to bring the sermon from the rear to the front because we are in a series for or against. We are in, uh, I believe, one of the bloodiest presidential elections we're ever going to have. And so I thought as a church, let's just jump right into the middle of some of these hot, hot topics. Let's take these hot potatoes and bounce them around a little bit. So that's why we called it for or against thinking with integrity. But what we want to do, I said last week, we're not going to tell you who to vote for, or how to vote. That's your personal conscience. I want to talk about these issues from a value perspective or a theological perspective of how God views it. I've said many times, you've heard me say it. I don't know what to think about the wall. I know what to think about immigration. But the wall is a strategy question. It's not my field. I've never read in it, anything on it. I've never talked to anybody that's an expert. I have no idea. But I can tell you what I think about immigration because the Bible is packed full of stuff on immigration. So we're going to jump into all these hot topics. And I'm handling, these, I'm handing off the especially difficult ones to mark before he leaves. <laughs> so a flourishing community. A flourishing community is absolutely critical if we want to have impact in our world for good. It really is. I've said for a long, long time, decades, that we need to ask our neighbors, if our church closed today, or we should ask ourselves, if our church closed today, would our neighbors across the street, would they be happy? Would they be sad? Would they even notice? There's only one good answer to that. And, and you can rest assured the environment that we create here is well known in the community. I hear about it all around us from people that don't come to our church of what they think of our church. I hear about it. So what we do here is absolutely very critical for us to have a mission out there. In other words, we can't say we love the Lord and then act like we don't. We just can't do that. So if we, if we actually authentically believe it, then it's going to be reflected out in our culture. And that was important to me. That was our very early conversation with Mark down in Denver. That was part of it. And right then we just clicked from that day forward because we're on the same page with the same agenda. So I had Jeremiah read this morning because this is a model. This is a picture, a very surprising picture uh, of what it means to be in the public sector and the role played by the people of God. It gives us a grasp of what healthy culture looks like. Now, the background, you can go ahead and put the passage up there if you want, Anne. Hey, Dave, have her put the passage up. The, um, they're back there being lovebirds. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay, 
here's the story. They've been deported, okay, to Babylon. This is historically well-known. King Nebuchadnezzar came and took the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had been demolished. Took the southern kingdom with uh, Judah and Jerusalem, and they deported them to Babylon. And so the false prophets began to say, you don't have to worry because the people are traumatized. They were, they were a foreign country came in, took them and moved them to a whole nother country and scattered them among their peoples so they couldn't be a force. They're all dispersed all throughout there. So they didn't know people. They didn't know the language or anything. And so they're terrified. They're traumatized by this. And so God sends Jeremiah with a letter because all the false prophets were saying, don't worry, don't worry. Uh, Babylon's going to fall within two years. And so he sends them with this letter. And what he says on another part that isn't, you haven't read to you on the letter, is that you're going to be here 70 years. 70 years. Settle down. That's his command. That's what's surprising. They were going to stay in exile for 70 years. You see, God makes it clear to them this was his work. And it, it, it actually introduces a pattern which we see in Scripture more than once. That, remember in Genesis 12 when he came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that you can bless your descendants so that they can bless the world. Okay? All the nations. Well, we don't like to do that. We like to group together. And so what happens is God kicks them out. It happened here. It happened in Acts 8. In Acts 2 at Pentecost, you may remember, they were all together. Life was wonderful. They were breaking bread together and enjoying each other daily, it says. And then after one year, uh, Acts 8 said God scattered them. Greater persecution arose, and he scattered them all around the world. And all the different disciples went in different places. And then they began to tell other people about the Lord, who we believe is the one true God, the one true living God who cares about everyone. And so that's a pattern that we see. So this story actually represents one of the places where God fulfills his promise to Abraham. Because here's what he says. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. He's taking responsibility for it. So bless them. Pray Lord for this city because if it prospers, you too will prosper it. So right here in this one verse, we have three uses of the word shalom, which is very central to our theology. How does Paul open every letter? Grace and peace to you. And the word shalom is the word peace. So let me read it to you and point out where they are. Seek the peace. There's one word shalom and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, there's another word shalom with a different English translation, you too will prosper. There's the word shalom. Three times this word is used in this verse, and it's showing us that God's intent is that his people would go into places and bring peace and prosperity. I'm not talking about wealth. Don't be confused. I'm talking about goodness. That's what we as Christians are supposed to do. And our relationships out here We are to bring peace and goodness to people. So this is an amazing story early in Scripture of what he he desires from his people. And the surprise is that it happens on enemy soil. Happens on enemy soil. Babylon was the enemy. 
And God said, I sent you there on purpose. Now, as the scriptures unfold, we begin to see that they actually fulfilled this and lived it out. We have the story of Daniel. Remember the story of Daniel? He rose to a very high level. His three friends, they rose to very high levels. Ezra, Nehemiah, they rose to such high levels in the uh, Persian government, which eventually took over for Babylon. They rose to such high levels that they got letters from the king to go back and rebuild Jerusalem 70 years later with the resources of Persia. They had protection. They had letters to do it. That's captured in Ezra and Nehemiah. So you have Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, the three friends of Daniel. We have all six examples of Jewish people who rose to these levels. Okay? Esther, Queen Esther. There's another one. Rose to the level of queen. Persia. So, so these, these Jewish people did, some of them did what God asked them to do. They settled down in the, in the foreign world where God took them, and they began to bring about goodness and peace, which is what Christianity should be all about, is bringing about that. So what is a flourishing community? These are some of the, remember, I'm letting you kind of sneak in behind the veil, what happens on the other side of the wall, and all the countless discussions Mark and I have had over the years. So you have a sense of what God might be doing in his kingdom by taking these two away from us. Okay? One of the questions that we have wrestled with is the role of the Holy Spirit. We actually do believe that it's essential that the Holy Spirit is present here. But what does that actually look like? That has shaped the way we do our ministry planning. We'll have more on that later. Uh, if you're at the congregational meeting, you have a sense of what that looks like. But we are always looking and sensing for where the Holy Spirit is involved. But there's another question that we have dangled in front of us in a variety of ways as we've, as we've analyzed you. Yes, we do talk about you behind your backs. Get used to it. It's all good. We have twinkles in our eye while we do it. Sometimes we cry, depending on who it is, Scott. But other than that... I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wasn't supposed to mention any names, was I? <laughs> Here's the question. How might Jesus' teaching be understood as a revolution? If you go to the Bible and find what you're looking for, you're reading it the wrong way. Oh, it does have some devotional material in it. But that just means you read the 3%. How might Jesus' teaching be understood as a revolution in ethical thought, in the way we think, so that it leads to a permanent change in our community, our attitudes, our behaviors? How does that happen? We have wrestled together with that question for six and a half years as we think about you. You see, in, in, the, uh, in the New Testament, there's a little word group that's very helpful. Everybody is familiar with the idea of practice. You do something and you practice it. I always love that they apply that to doctors and dentists. They're practicing on us. You know, lawyers, they're practicing. Okay, but there's another word which gives a slightly different nuance. It's the word praxis. It's a technical term. Some of you may have heard it. It's in the literature out there. But here's what that means. Practice is when you do something over and over and over again. The world can do that. The government can do that. Praxis is where the same behavior reveals the deeper beliefs that you have. So the government can create a food bank, and they should. But the church 
can't, that's practice, can create a food bank with praxis where our handing out food actually models the love that we have for the person standing right in front of us. Make sense? That, without question, is the hardest part of church leadership. There's no easy road to get you there. I could talk all day till I'm blue in the face up here over and over and over again, but that's not going to move you. Here's what helps move you. This is where Mark and I have partnered together. Is we say, uh, when I first got here, I asked the staff, are there any uh, marriages or families that might be in trouble? I'm not an attorney. I don't need evidence. Your intuition's fine. So they give me a name, call the person, said, hey, I was, I was honest. I was in a staff meeting, and I asked if there are any families that are hurting or might be in trouble or need help. And you're, one of the persons in the staff said that they thought that you were struggling a little bit. I'd like to meet with you and your spouse and see if I can encourage you. So we went out, sat down. First thing the husband said to me was, I much less cared. We're already talking to divorce attorneys. I said, okay. Is that what you want? I mean, I know you didn't get married to get divorced. That was never your goal. Would you like to try some things before you pull that trigger? They didn't get divorced. Still together. And we've done that for six and a half years. You see, this movement from practice to praxis is sitting across, across 5,000 coffees and looking in your eyes. And if we do that, that makes what Mark and I do up here, this whole thing, more effective. And I've had coffee with lots of you, and so has Mark. In fact, it's pretty funny because uh, Mark and I chase each other around the county. Don't we? And when we walk in together, the staffs are surprised. What are you guys doing here? What do you mean? With, well, we're with each other. What? Because we chase each other around the counties and restaurants and coffee shops and things like that. 5,000 coffee is what it takes to create this type of community. We've said over and over and over again, if your marriage is in trouble or whatever it is you're struggling with, don't be ashamed. I've been down that road. Nancy confirmed when I asked her in the first service, we've gone through periods where we've been in trouble. In fact, now it's gotten to the point where every time we have an anniversary, we have to remind her that's a good thing she married such a great guy all those years ago. <laughs> Just in case she forgets. Don't be ashamed. I've been there. Many of us have. Whatever the struggle with, whatever the struggle you have, don't let shame stop you from saying help. Let's get help. That's what this flourishing community is all about. When Jesus gave the new command in John 13, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have the right doctrine. Is that it? Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you attend the right church. Let's just say for the sake of argument that we're the best church in the county. No, let's say we're the best church in the world. Let's just go for the big one. Okay, there is no better church than this one right here. Is that how people are going to know that you're a disciple of the Lord? No. No. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's pretty simple. We're going to miss the mixed metaphor of Mark. It's not rocket surgery. 
It's really quite simple. It's as simple as that. Whoever walks through that door is welcome. Do we have love? That's what we started the journey on six and a half years ago, Mark and I. And the staff, not only just Mark, but uh, Mark, because we're soon going to feel his absence. I will, very tremendously, because this is thousands of hours of discussion on the other side of that wall. And I wanted you to see, I wanted you to have a glimmer, a sense of his priorities and what we have done together, how we've worked together tirelessly for this reason, for the sake of the gospel. It's easy to think that we're losing somebody, but I can tell you after decades and decades of Christian discipling and ministry, I love building into people. I just love it. It's my heart. And the happiest day of my life is when I watch people transform in front of my eyes. The saddest day of my life is when the Lord takes them someplace else. I have a long list of those guys scattered all over the country, all over the world, actually, where God has taken them. So this is personally very difficult for me. But here's how I want you to think about this. What do you think the next congregation is going to receive? What did you say in the first service, Dave? The first, they're in for a wild ride, right? With Mark and Jenny. Mark likes to bring tension to the argument. Whew, can't wait for the, to hear from the next pastor. Why would you tell me to hire this guy? <laughs> Think about what the next congregation is receiving. They're receiving a gift, aren't they? Do you agree with that? Yeah? Think about what we're going to be receiving. If we believe in the sovereignty of God, is He going to take care of us too? Yeah. You see, Mark will be back on vacation at some point. He can't help it. He'll come back on vacation. We'll make sure Jenny gets oxygen while she's here. And he's going to tell us about the wild ride, isn't he? And we're going to tell him about the wild ride. I hate it. I hate to lose you. But it's an important part of the kingdom. This is not about DCC. I didn't give my life to DCC. I gave my life to the kingdom. And that's what we are about. We're going to take the offering... And let me just say, I mentioned that um, that move from practice to praxis. I bring this up every now and then. From my vantage point, when we look at you, we see a very generous congregation. But I don't know if that's true or not. You could actually be greedy. You could be meeting our needs and be greedy. We don't know that. That's between you and the Lord. Here's what that looks like. When you have all of your wealth and you look at it, you think, oh, that's mine. And I have to corral it, protect it. Or do you think, God has blessed me with this so I can bless others? You know our position. We use your finances and every other mission and Christian agency does as well for the glory of the Lord. So I'm not asking you to give more. I'm very content with what you're giving. But that's that movement where you have to individually come to that conclusion that I do want to be generous. Thank you for being generous. It means a lot to us. You are generous. Father, thank you for this congregation right here because they do have a deep love for you. And thank you, Lord, for Mark and Jenny for the work they have done and will continue to do with us, the seeds they have planted and the crops they have grown. Lord, we know that uh, wherever they're going, there's a congregation about to be really blessed. And we will miss them terribly. 
but we'll also have more time with them in the future and in eternity. And I pray for, for whoever you have for us, that that would be a surprise for us as well. Thank you for your goodness. You genuinely are a good God. And thank you for helping us to learn how to love one another and love our friends and neighbors so that we can represent your goodness to them. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Ask the ushers to come take the offering. Thanks for being generous. You guys are great. He became sin. sin.